0: Hey friends, welcome back to this week's episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. I'm your non-diet dietitian, trainer, and host Katie, and this is episode 277. Today, I'm so excited for you to listen into this really raw and just different, interesting, really dynamic episode with a colleague that I interviewed. Her name is Courtney Vickery. She is also a registered dietitian, also a certified intuitive eating counselor, but she brings a unique approach as a yoga teacher and actually an eating disorder survivor herself. She's passionate about providing nutrition services that are, of course, based in intuitive eating and weight inclusivity. She owns her private practice called Vickery Wellness, and she also owns a website and branding studio called Declat Designs. Now, again, she's got such a unique background, and she's going to share a little bit of her story, but her bachelor's degree is in political science and dietetics as well as a master's in food nutrition from the University of Georgia. She completed her dietetic internship, her graduate certificate in gerontology at the University of Georgia as well. Another interesting piece of her story is that before she went into private practice, she was a clinical dietitian. Outpatient wellness dietitian. We talk about our similar experiences working as group fitness managers. She was a healthcare administrator, and most recently, she actually served as the interim director of the dietetic internship at the University of Georgia. In addition to her private practice and design studio, she is currently serving as the president of the Northeast Georgia Dietetic Association and is an instructor in the food and nutrition department at the University of Georgia. So. She's a mom, she's got animals, she's just a super cool human, and I can't wait for you to listen to this episode.
1: Welcome to Fit Friends Happy Hour, a podcast about all things nutrition, fitness, and life in your 20s and 30s, all from a non-diet lens. I'm your host, Katie Hake, and I'm a registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified personal trainer. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people and experts from all walks of life about their relationship with food and their bodies. I'll also share my experience working with clients in my private practice to help women find food freedom and body confidence. I'm on a mission to help you stop quantifying and start living. Learn to stop measuring your success by the scale and find your fears. Courtney, welcome to the podcast. So happy to have you. I feel like...
0: We could have just kept talking and I already know this is going to be a great podcast episode because we're just jabbing away. I'm like, hey, wait, we, we actually need to start the episode. So <laughs> welcome. Yes. Thank you
2: for having me. Excited to be here.
0: So tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what is your story with food and with fitness?
2: Yeah. So um I'm actually an eating disorder survivor myself. I developed, you know, disordered habits and thoughts around my body and food when I was eight in the third grade. And kind of just occurred until I finally recovered when I was around 22, 23. And that was, you know, when I was in college and I was teaching group fitness classes and teaching yoga and
0: cycle and step and everything except for Pilates. I have taught. (laughs) So we were, we were the same person in college growing up. (laughs) except you taught yoga. I never taught yoga. That was the one thing. I
1: Mm -hmm. think I maybe
0: subbed one yoga class and I was like, "Mm, that's probably my first and last. My phone went off like during the (laughs) Savasana, which I'm saying totally wrong. And i was like, that's a sign.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, I, um, it was like the one summer in my entire life that I didn't work full time or go to school full time. I did my 200 hour training that summer. And
0: that was like, quote, a summer off for me. So (laughs) I want to come back to that because I have lots of questions, but let's, you know, continue your story, kind of just your journey, but definitely I want to come back Mm -hmm. because I think listeners right now can probably just imagine that timeframe in college Mm -hmm. where fitness was such a positive, Mm -hmm. but maybe took it to the extreme.
2: Yes. And I look back now and I'm like, wow, that was way too much on my body, but I didn't like realize it at the time, obviously. Before I got into group fitness, though, I ran. And not because I'm a runner, because I'm not, um, <laughs> but because I just felt the pressure to run. I don't know what it is about college. I've had clients say that to me as well. But if you like are around people that run, you just feel this pressure to become a runner as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I started running, and I would run like five to six miles a day or whatever. And I tore my meniscus. Oh, wow. Just running on the treadmill. It sounds like not. it's not an interesting story. <laughs> running on the treadmill and felt it pop and couldn't walk out. So that's kind of how I got into group fitness. Cause I was like, I got to do something. And I started going to step classes and for some reason that did not bother my knee. So I just started from step and then just everything on from there.
0: At the time when you were in college then, so when you get kind of give that timeline, when you you know consider yourself recovered from an eating disorder, was it really after college?
2: At, yes. After college. So I went back to college twice. So maybe I'll give a little dates to make that clear. (laughs) I graduated the first time in 2008 with a political science degree and I graduated early and I thought I wanted to go to law school and I worked in politics or whatever for a year and that was not for me. But the reason I did finish that degree and not do nutrition to begin with was because I was so still deep in my eating disorder and I didn't want to be studying nutrition when I was already obsessing about it as much as that was. Wow, interesting. So around that time, like 2009 is when I would say I was going into recovery. I was still exercising way too much, but I was recovered in the sense of, you know, my eating habits and thoughts and feelings about body image and the intensity and frequency of which that was happening. Right. And I went back and studied dietetics and undergrad and stayed for my master's and the internship and became a dietitian. And
0: yeah. (laughs) So what was it? Well, so I'm curious, what was it for you that made you actually want to go back, especially given, you know, your history? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I wasn't happy (laughs) in politics or I didn't like work for campaigns or anything. I worked for a company that this sounds so boring and it was boring, but basically I was like an accountant for all of the politicians and PACs and they have to report their donations and funding, et cetera, every quarter. So I was compiling those desk job, data entry. Exactly. And that was exactly it. I was like, I never want to have a desk job again. And I was like, well, you know, I really wanted to be a dietitian. And maybe I should consider that because like they work in the hospital and they don't sit at a desk really, you know, they're walking around seeing patients and interactive. And I went and actually shadowed a dietitian at a local hospital just to get an idea before I went back. And yeah, I was like, I think I, I feel like I'm in a place that I can do it now. Um, I mean, looking back, you know, your journey continues and you're like, wow, still, you know, some disorder, you know, things happening there in that setting because everyone kind of in that field is uh, got some rules, some food rules and some habits that
0: you are exposed to. Absolutely. It's in a sense, it's, you know, part of our training and whether or not things are, you know, delivered as rules. I think our brains, just human nature naturally, as we're learning, you know, Mm turn some of those things into rules. So today we're going to talk a lot about, you know, specifically, you know, pediatrics and kids and disordered eating in that range. But, you know, before we talk about Mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm really curious if you're open to sharing, what was it like for you? You know, you say looking back like eight years old, what was Mm -hmm. kind of your food story you know, body image growing up at that young of an age.
2: Yeah, I can't think of like, you know, there wasn't like a defining moment where it was like, wow, this is what triggered my issues or my thoughts around body and food. I do think that there is a pattern that I've seen in myself and others that if you have any trauma in your life at a young age that you tend to try to cope with it in certain ways and one of those ways is through food and exercise. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like I was just trying to cope with some stuff and it just kind of internalized to my body in combination with being teased um cuz I wasn't a bigger body me. and yeah, I just you know, remember being uncomfortable in my clothes and it just kind of became empowering to me at the time to feel that control of being able to control my food and obsess over the numbers. And, you know, I was eight years old with a calorie counting book because mm. we didn't have it. We didn't have the internet then. I'm pre-internet.
0: <laughs> a, a blessing and a curse in itself. Right. <laughs> I rem- But I even right. remember, oh my gosh. I remember even in school or I don't know. I, I I don't know what I remember, but I vividly remember having a book. I think it was called like the calorie King book or something yes. like that. Do you I know had, which that book? Was it. That's yes. the one I had. Where it was, yes. it was supposed to be like uh-huh. the Bible database of, all yes. foods that yep. you could look up. Yep. That's exactly the book I had. Wow. I just had like a flashback um, moment.
2: <laughs> I, I can't believe you remember the name of it. I could not remember the name of it, but if I saw it, I would know. Yeah. And I had like another little notebook and I would count and, you know, I won't go into details about like how much I or how little I ate, but it was restrictive. And I look back and I'm like, wow, the damage that could have been even worse, you know, like in that developmental time to be so restrictive and not getting the literal nutrients that my body needed. And, you know, and I look back and think about going to the doctors and all the things that were issues, but yet no one knew Mm -hmm. like, or made the connection. I I don't
0: like to get in arguments with people on social media very often, unless it (laughs) warrants, but I was literally just Mm -hmm. in, in not an argument, a civilized argument with a a follower on social media, actually just the other day on Instagram, because she, I had posted something about kids and bodies, the new, some new Disney short that came out for anybody listening. If you thought. I saw about that. I
2: haven't watched it yet. And and so basically
0: it's, it's a younger girl in a larger body and she's a dancer and the whole, I think it's a five minute clip. It's all revolved around her body and, feeling empowered by her body image. And, you know, I I just shared my opinions on the clip. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I Mm -hmm. asked people before I I had given my opinion, you know, what's your opinion on this based on what you've seen? And a couple followers were, you know, this promotes childhood obesity. I can't believe it. It's so unhealthy. And so just hearing just the thoughts, like the the real thoughts that some people still have, I shouldn't even say thoughts, their beliefs about children in larger bodies.
2: Um, And see, like, I have to like, you know, take a pause (laughs) is what I call them because it makes me so angry to hear people say stuff like that. Like it makes me livid, but I try to remember that they're projecting Mm -hmm. is something that they fear and feel uncomfortable with or that they experienced in their own life. It's anti-fatness,
0: it's fat phobia. Like they have
2: some internal work
0: to think about. Right. And <laughs> to, it's so hard to explain that in an Instagram message. <laughs> oh
2: my gosh. Yeah, no, I know. I, Instagram, I don't know. I just, mm, I don't have the the spins. Yeah. That. We have to, we have
0: to <laughs> learn to protect our energy over here. So maybe yes. let's start there. You know, you've obviously given your own history and the work that you do now, you know, I imagine you've learned a lot about, just disordered eating, especially at a young age. So mm-hmm. do you know, like how common is disordered eating or specifically eating disorders, like in the elementary school age?
2: Yeah. So I, you know, I have the stats, but I was, when I was getting ready for this, I was thinking like, I wish, or I, You know, I'm so curious to see like after the pandemic, because I know that they are way higher now, just based off of our, you know, what we've been experiencing. as providers in the past two years and the increase in eating disorder treatment that people are needing and the wait lists and Mm -hmm. just, you know, how it affected everyone. But pre-pandemic numbers, um, you know, one that I always share is that by age six, that girls will start to express concerns about their own weight or shape in that 40 to 60% of elementary school girls are concerned about their weight or becoming, quote, too fat, Mm -hmm and that concern endures through life like i always think about do we want to be 80 years old and counting our calories instead of living our life um like
0: you sharing those statistics I, i'm just full of visions for those that obviously we don't share the video in here but Courtney's video is like black right now so i think i'm just like my brain is like creating these own images while while you're talking <laughs> but while you're talking i just had you know a couple people come to mind about, you know, a friend recently shared with me her seven-year-old or seven-year-old or the friend came mm-hmm. home all concerned about a certain coat because she didn't want to look fat. And you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. not wanting to have those same concerns as an 80-year-old. And I think of a former client who her grandmother, she shared with me many stories that her grandmother, 80 years old, was still counting, mm-hmm. you know, almonds that she was eating yeah. or... So it's just wild. Mm-hmm. You know, I think everybody should take a pause and really let that statistic st- mm-hmm. sink in 40 to 60% of. And
2: I, I would say it's even higher. I honestly. would agree. I would argue like, that I mean, as that, well. Yeah. Like, especially, you know, in recent years, I would say it's, it's a lot higher with so, like, social media as influence and everything. But yeah, I mean, some of the other ones I found were, you know, 42% of first to third grader, third grade age girls want to be thinner. Mm-hmm. 81% of 10 year old children are afraid of becoming um, fat Is a neutral term for me, but I know that some people are uncomfortable hearing it. So that's why I'm always hesitating when I say we can, it. We can use this um, on the so, show,
0: but yeah, I love if you could explain it, maybe if you could explain and kind of educate the audience as well, why some people hesitate to use that word.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, lived experience that they, you know, have, that has been used as an insult to them and, you know, they've experienced weight stigma and that word has been, has caused them hurt. But I know that a lot of people want to take that word back and want to have it be seen as a neutral descriptor. So when I'm saying it, that's how I'm saying it. But I, if I ever have a client, for example, who's not comfortable with that, like I obviously don't start out saying that. I let them choose how they want to describe themselves and, you know, other phrases that are, I feel like more gentle phrases are, you know, bigger body. So yeah, there's a lot of articles. I know like Aubrey Gordon wrote an article about that word and um, yeah, I can send some links to some articles if you want to share those. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thoughts we that definitely, word. <laughs>
0: we'll link to those in, in the show notes as well. So, you mm-hmm. know, why do you think that is like based on your experience, yeah. obviously, you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the research, but why do you think that is based on like your experience um, in the work that you've mm-hmm. done? Well, it's a combination
2: of things. And when I share some of these things, I don't want people to feel guilt um, if they are a parent or a grandparent or anything like that. But sometimes it is generational. Like you said, like the grandma counting the almonds or the family member or the aunt or whatever it may be. And they learn that from society and it just continues to cycle through until someone breaks the cycle. And that's what I work with a lot of my older clients to do is to, you know, break the cycle so that they aren't perpetuating diet culture to their kids because they have themselves been harmed by it and they don't want that for their kids and they don't know how to do it because a lot of times the grandparent is still in their life and they try to set boundaries and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So it's partially that, obviously partially society, social media and, I don't, you know, when I was growing up, it was magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if people really look at magazines anymore. But yeah. um, I feel like social media kind of
0: replaces. I think about that every time I go to a grocery it. store and see the crazy the headlines <laughs> that they have. I'm like, who is still actually buying these magazines? But I guess somebody yes. is. Otherwise, they wouldn't still have them at the, at the end aisles. Right. Yes. Um, Yeah. I used
2: to go to the Rite Aid on the corner during college and would like buy all the junkie magazines just to read for fun. And, I, you know, the things that they would show, like, you know, who wore it better and talking about people's beach bodies. And, you know, we would like to think that we're, you know, oh, we don't do that anymore. We're more body positive is happening, but it's really not. Yeah. People are still phobic or anti fat and people still experience weight stigma a lot and a lot of people internalize that weight stigma to themselves. And I'm not
0: sure if you saw yeah. that recent article by the I think it was the New York Post that came out recently that was about, you know, heroin chic is back. Yes.
2: So I saw some people I mean I've seen a lot of people sharing about it and I'll be honest that I've been trying to like protect my space lately just because I'm feeling a lot of mm. feelings and, um, I have to, you know, conserve my energy for myself and my clients. Hundred percent. So I, I see that and I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I just immediately felt rage when I even saw those pictures, because that is the era that, you know, we grew up in, in the nineties when that was in. And, you know, the things that we saw were so unrealistic and <laughs> so harmful because no, you know, their bodies look that way either genetically or because they were harming
0: themselves. I think you bring up such a good point though. It goes in ebbs and flows, at least this is how I feel. I'm curious if you feel the same way of, yes, mm-hmm. we've made so much progress as a, as a culture, as a society. Yeah. And then sometimes I step back and I think about it to your point or have things just shifted. They just look different. Mm-hmm. It's still the same yeah. you know, bullshit, but it's just packaged yep. differently yep. in a different- <laughs> exactly. um, you know, media, a different, what's, what's the word I'm looking for?
2: Well, I mean, if you look at, I mean, I don't want to drop company names, but some companies who like try to present themselves as intuitive eating and they're really not because they are telling you that this food is good, bad, or kind of okay. You know, they're labeling the food. They are focusing on the scale as a determinant of success. So, you know, that's still dieting and
0: I literally gave a talk to a group of local personal trainers last week, and there was a gal sitting in the back. She was a you know personal trainer, but she shared that she went to school for nutrition. And so she said, I can't remember what principle we were talking about, but this was like very high level intro to intuitive eating. What is health at every size? Like a lot of people have really never even heard of the concept. And she had shared, well, oh, well, I have clients, I have them eat every two hours for the first 30 days. And so that's, she was like very convicted that that was intuitive eating. And I just, I wanted to just like storm <laughs> out the room and just end the end the presentation yeah. there. Like, oh my gosh, because it was such, yeah. you know, to me, she's going around educating people and this is intuitive eating. But I'm like, you're, you're literally sitting here listening to this information, but it's not it is not the same thing. It is not the same thing. And she, she said as well. Um, well, I went to school for nutrition, so I know all this. And I just wanted to bash Mm -hmm. my head because it's so many people are so still entrenched in diet culture that it can be right in their face, but they still, they're still stuck so deep in their journey that they can't even recognize it.
2: It's almost like a religion for some people. Like they really have this faith and this belief that they're, you know, this is the way. And if you don't do it this way, then it is wrong. And it's hard to break a lifetime of that. And I I tell clients that all the time, like, you know, don't expect this is not a 12 week fix. (laughs) You know, this is a lifetime of how your brain has been fundamentally wired to think about these things. And it's going to take a while (laughs) to not think about things that way. But I was thinking back to your question too. I wanted to include this thought about you know what the reason is about some of the factors that kind of go into why a younger child would develop an eating disorder. But one thing that I think people don't think about as much is that children that have chronic illnesses are at a higher risk, especially if they are insulin dependent with diabetes. Like that's a statistical <laughs> research, is not just like my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're at a higher risk, and I would also throw in there. Neurodivergent childrens as well, especially now that we, rec- you know, know that ARFID is a recognized eating disorder in the DSM. And
0: yeah, can um, you explain? Can you, you know, educate our clients? So we haven't talked about ARFID. Gosh, I don't even know if we've ever really talked about ARFID on here. But do you mind educating yeah. clients? You know, you know what that is and what yes. what does neurodivergent mean for maybe some of our listeners who okay. don't yes. have kids, maybe want to have kids, but like, wait, I should yep. know what is that? That's a <laughs> learning something new every day. Yeah. So.
2: Neurodivergent, I would say, is like an umbrella term for anyone that brain works differently. Like I'm neurodivergent. I have OCD um, and anxiety and my daughter um, is autistic. And, you know, anything that is kind of like the brain is in it. I look at it as a good thing, like different um, is neurodivergent. And then ARFID is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And. Um, mostly seen in children, and it's it's not like your typical like oh they just won't eat they're just picky. This is extreme extreme picky eating. They have a very very limited number of foods that they can eat, and it's very much sensory for them as well, like texture, smells, and it's not related to body image. They're not trying to lose weight. They just their body just physically is revolted by certain foods and. Um, find it difficult to get enough nourishment throughout the day. So, you know, part of the dietitian's job is to help figure out what can we do to make sure that they are getting what they need and doing it in a way that they still have autonomy. We're not obviously trying to do things that they aren't comfortable with. Mm-hmm.
0: So, you're saying some of these disorders, these children are also associated to be at, to be at higher risk for disordered eating eating disorders. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, especially autistic children because you know if they aren't taught you know how to be themselves and express their emotions in a way that feels right to them if they are put in a box and told like don't stem don't do this sit and crisscross applesauce don't move you know that's a lot of internalized things going on in their mind about I want to get up I want to move I you know it's They don't know how to process all of that when they're being told something that's so against their nature. So that can sometimes come out as, you know, wanting control when it comes to food and exercise.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's that's so interesting. So what are some warning signs that, you know, parents or caregivers should look out for in their kids, you know, or I don't have kids yet, but I'm thinking of like my nieces Mm -hmm. and nephews and you know, what are things that we can look out for? Like what's normal behavior for a kid and what's, a oh wait, that's, that's something to be concerned about.
2: Right. So I would say body checking. So that's when they are constantly or not even constantly, but you see them like looking in the mirror and it's not just your normal, like, does this outfit look okay? Like, so I need to adjust my shirt or something. It's, they're looking at their body and judging it or taking pictures of their body so they can compare it to a previous picture if they are frequently going to the bathroom after meals is a big mm-hmm. one to me because it was one of mine um because they're going in there to possibly to get rid of whatever mm-hmm. they ate um hiding food and and I say hiding food like some people may be like oh that's so common it is, but we need to figure out why they feel the need to hide the food. Because something else is going on and we don't want them to feel shamed or guilt or like they have to hide food. Are they coping? Um what's you know, it's okay to use food as a coping mechanism sometimes, but not all the time. We need to have other tools and we don't want them to feel like they have to hide it or feel guilty mm-hmm. about it. Um of course counting calories. If they have a little calorie king book, you should probably um do something. <laughs> well, it makes,
0: it makes me think about, you know, how one day when, when I have kids about like just the future of like cell phones and technology and how, yes. you know, that's probably so easy for kids to oh, yeah. download mm-hmm. something. Like, I mean, kids are so smart at a young age. Oh my gosh. technology! Yeah. My daughter probably knows how to use a phone better. Yeah. Than I like um, I could just see a young child, like downloading my fitness pal or some yeah. sort of health app.
2: Yeah. And see, and that's, again, like going back to the neurodivergent aspect of it, like as someone with OCD, the numbers would call to me, Mm. (laughs) like with my fitness pal. And it would start off as just like, I'm curious, you know, I should start tracking this. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've gone down the rabbit hole. Mm. Some other things are a fear of stomach aches, like they're afraid to eat something that might cause their stomach to hurt. Or actually stomach aches, like if they're not eating enough or, you know, having digestive issues um, like constipation or diarrhea, anything like that, especially reflux. And again, these are not to say this is definitely the cause. But if you start seeing a pattern of these things in combination with some other behaviors, um, definitely maybe, you know, talking to them about it. And another one is that fine hair growth on the body, the lanugo. Mm -hmm. Um, I never know if I'm saying that correctly, but it's like the thin, soft, blonde hair. And that happens when someone is, you know restricting for a long period of time and their body's trying to compensate and get some warmth. And of course, thinning of hair, losing their hair, delay of puberty, and talking about body image all the time or talking about their body.
0: Something I thought about, you know, because of our, what we had talked about earlier, what about? you know, what would you say to someone listening and maybe they recognize some of these things and have a hunch of maybe a child in their life, but in their head, they're thinking, but this child's in a larger body, this child, I'm going to use words Mm -hmm. that I think uh, listeners would use or what, not our listeners, but maybe what they'd hear. Oh, that child's chunky, that they're chubby, they're Mm. still have their baby fat, right? Things like that. Uh, What, what advice would you have to that situation?
2: That literally, I think it's like 6% of people diagnosed with an eating disorder are considered underweight less than 6% because an eating disorder, like, honestly, I wish they would just take away the weight piece Mm -hmm. of it (laughs) completely because it doesn't changing thing. I'm looking at the behaviors. I'm looking at how the behaviors are impacting their life, the frequency, the intensity. And, you know, I saw something, um, on Instagram the other day, or maybe it was today where they were like, you know, it's crazy how an eating disorder treatment, someone in a smaller body can be praised for adding a snack to their meal plan where someone in a bigger body could be, you know, shamed for mm-hmm. doing it. And, it's that kind of stuff. And someone asked me the other week um, for my thoughts on whether or not a certain treatment center should be separating binge eating clients from other eating disorders. And I was like, "What? <laughs> no. Wow. But why? Why are you? Why are you othering them? Can so you?
0: It, okay. We have. W- I understand where you're coming from, but can you explain like why that question? It was so baffling to us.
2: <laughs> yes, because a lot of times binge eating disorder gets you know the stigma around it that goes along with weight stigma because they're typically in a sometimes a bigger body and so people judge them and think like oh well just don't eat so much or you don't have a real eating disorder because you're in a bigger body and like the harm of eating disorder is just as much as anorexia it's like anorexia is put on a pedestal for some people and like it's the Queen of eating disorders, and we see that typical thin white female of having an eating disorder and it being anorexia, when really it could be anyone of any shape, size could have it. It's disorder. interesting
0: that you say that too. At the same talk that I gave last week, I asked the group, "I said, what What do you all define as an eating disorder? What do you know about eating disorders?" And that was all they said was anorexia. That yep. that was that was the extent yep. of what they recognized. As disordered mm-hmm. eating or eating disorders,
2: yeah, and that's that's the typical society. And like, I sometimes get stuck in my bubble of you know, weight inclusive.
0: Same. That's how I felt. And- and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's been too long since I've been out in the community. Yes. I've been so sheltered. <laughs> wait, yes, kind of like recharged me. Like, wait, the people do need us. Okay. Yes. Wow! Wow! <laughs> we we still have a lot of work to do. Job security. <laughs> oh yes, uh, a ton of work to do. But yeah. It, It's like, you know, I
2: I go between being angry and being sad about it because it's just like, how do you, I just feel, you know, for anyone that feels invalidated about their eating disorder because of, you know, or if they feel like I'm not, you know, I always talk to clients about how they don't feel sick enough. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what is sick enough? Like at what point, you know, and we go through that whole exercise of, you know, we could, I like to call it the rabbit hole and the why exercise of like, why? and then why.
0: Mm-hmm. I I want <laughs> because, to yeah. recognize and just hold space for anybody listening to that if they, you know, maybe they're at whatever age they are now, and they're thinking back, maybe reflecting on their own childhood around food mm-hmm. and fitness and, and body image and recognize some of the things that looking back, they're like, wow, I wish, I wish somebody recognized, you know, whether or not you ever got a diagnosis mm-hmm. of, an eating disorder. Like, if you still think back on your journey of experiencing some of those symptoms or feeling this way, like, oh, uh, I just want to hold space and give your younger child self like a hug.
2: Yes, I do the younger child exercise a lot with clients because they just have a hard time giving themselves compassion in the in where they are now. I'm like, just think about your younger self, and if that doesn't work, then I'm like think about your best friend's younger self. You know, because it's just you know you wouldn't you wouldn't want your younger self to feel that way. So how can we you know hold space and give ourselves compassion right now?
0: Right. Yeah. It's it's so much easier said than done, but oh yeah, but absolutely. It, but it can <laughs> but it can be done. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> what would you say are some of the common experiences that you notice in clients from their childhood that as adults have been just a really like challenge and struggle to to work through in their recovery.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I'll go back to the number one thing of being if they have experienced trauma. So that's why I won't work with anyone that doesn't have a therapist because I can obviously hold space for that discussion and we can talk about how it has impacted their thoughts around their body and food, but they really have got to, you know, work through the trauma piece with a the therapist that's a good fit for them which again, that's a whole nother discussion of like finding good mental health care and having access to it. But ideally, you know, they would work with a therapist on that side of things. And then just diet culture and weight stigma. I mean, the everyday things like going to work and the coworkers talking about the diet that they're on and, you know, how every day at lunch, you know, they're eating their little packaged meal and talking about how much weight they've lost and you again have to be like, I don't want to hear about this, and you have to set another boundary, and then you're exhausted because you keep having to set boundaries all day long instead of just living your life and not talking about it. Like, can we talk about something else? Yeah,
0: it's ex- it's exhausting um. <laughs> for the client themselves to do the mm-hmm. work. To you know, it's it's emotionally yes. it's emotionally really tough work sometimes. To number one, to be in therapy, but to be in therapy and then also working with a dietitian the work that we do right it's almost like mm-hmm. i mean it is nutrition therapy right And so it's can be oh yeah <laughs> emotionally exhausting but then to have to you know you you go to sleep and you wake up recharged and go to work and then to basically mm-hmm. have to to mentally and, and physically mm-hmm. like you said put up those boundaries and hear all the things yeah. it's like you can't escape it
2: yeah and you know, and the weight stigma piece that's every day and, you know, maybe feeling like they don't have anyone to talk to because they don't want to feel judged Mm -hmm. because they don't think, you know, others will understand or, you know, will say something hurtful. And of course, family, (laughs) family is always a big piece of discussion Mm -hmm. because, you know, I found another statistic that I was like, wow. But, um, if someone, if a, so if a parent, sibling, or another relative of a child has an eating disorder, they are seven to 12 times more likely to develop one mm. than a child who doesn't have a relative with that history. It
0: just goes to show so much of it is number one, I think genetic, but also just your environment yeah. and who you surround yourself with. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: yeah, and, and again, like it's exhausting, like you said, to do the work and to do the boundary work because a, a lot of people, for a lot of my lives, the boundary work is the hardest part because they're people pleasers. Mm. They are recovering people, losers. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to break away from that because, you know, we don't want to upset anyone, but also we can't continue to listen to family members constantly talk negatively about their own body and other bodies and, you know, just take away their energy in that area.
0: Any tips just that you give clients specifically for ugh, on days when it is exhausting, like what advice mm. do you have in those moments? Yeah, so what I, I do an
2: exercise with them where they have to come up with like a toolkit of things that they can do, and I use it in two areas. In this area, when they need to take a moment, but also like if they are using food to cope, and we want to find other coping skills, but I tell them it has to be just as easy. It can't be the like I'm going to journal. Okay, well, you're probably not going to get your book out and write down things it's in the office. Or, yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, the, uh, the one that they always say, I'm going to take a walk. No, you're not right. Maybe, but probably not. (laughs) What if it's raining? What if it's cold out? Yeah, exactly. Or don't have my shoes or like, there's a lot of barriers that I'm like, it has to be less than like, or you have to work. Like, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, exactly. One thing that a lot of people have liked is I tell them literally just step outside, Mm. just step outside and change your environment and get that, you know, wave of fresh air. Does you have to do anything? Just literally step outside the door. And take a breath. Mm, I love that. And, you know, being able to kind of like break that thought pattern in a way that you can start to kind of appreciate it and then show yourself some self compassion and kind of be like, okay, yeah, I can accept that this is uncomfortable and I am exhausted, but I know that what I'm doing in the long run is going to benefit me more. I'm going to feel better. And then if I decide to have children, like, or if I have children, this is going to, you know, help benefit. Their future as
0: well. Kind of ground themselves in in the why, why they're doing this this Mm -hmm. work. I love that tip of just changing your environment, whether it's stepping outside or you know, if you're like in an office space, go into a different room, or Mm -hmm. that's a great tip. So I want to go back to to kind of your story, if you don't mind sharing kind of your your recovery. So you found group fitness, which I know is common for a lot of our listeners. You know, they fell into fitness, it was a positive thing for them. So how did fitness play a role kind of in your healing or in your recovery through those early years?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the beginning, (laughs) um, like when I started teaching group fitness, because I'd always exercised and it always felt like a chore because it was, you know, you go, you get on the elliptical for an hour and then you go do weights Mm -hmm. and It's just not fun. (laughs) So when I found group fitness, I was like, wow, this is fun. And then it became my job. And it's like, well, I'm getting paid to do this. So anytime that anyone would ask for sub, I would just do it. And I mean, I would teach regularly would teach three intense classes in a row, like hour long classes. Relatable. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And, you know, regularly would teach eight to 10 classes a week. And that was just like, I thought that was normal.
0: <laughs> I still laughing, hear so. of, cause I work very much in the fitness industry still. And yeah. I hear oh. of instructors coach. I think coaching is a little bit different, but still coaching, training versus actually teaching, but up to 20 mm-hmm. class. I remember in the thick of it for me, I was working with coworkers who were teaching, like actively teaching, doing the, doing the work mm-hmm. 20 plus classes a week. Oh um, Yeah.
2: Yeah. I know someone actually who's still a good friend and they are in their seventies and they still teach and they teach a lot of classes a week. Wow. Out.
1: Um, I, yeah. I think
2: ouch
0: <laughs> is what I think. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. And you know, too, like I didn't, like I said, I would teach the most intense class. It would be like step. And then I used to teach a class called ripped, which was really mm-hmm. fun, but very intense. I taught body combat, um, which is a Les Mills course and I taught kickboxing. So, I mean, I was not, I wasn't the one like walking around, like adjusting anybody. I was like doing doing it all um, out with them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I had foot pain all the time. You know, I ha- had a hard time sleeping. Mm. Um, definitely, you know, now I'm like, wow, de- I still wasn't eating enough for the you know amount of exercise I was doing. So it kind of changed when I had my daughter because now I was working full time. And I had an infant. So I was like, how can I figure this out? Like, I want to work out. And I was still wrapped in this idea of like, how could anyone go a day without exercising?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um <laughs> But um, when you have a kid that changes.
0: <laughs> You're like, oh, I get and, it. Man. I get how people take a day yeah. off. I get it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, Oh, uh, okay. yes. <laughs> um, I'm not young, wild and free anymore. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so I started teaching a baby wearing boot camp class. So I would wear her in my baby carrier and like, we would do exercises like, you know, as a group at a local like mom and baby shop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then I kind of got back in the groove of my job and I was then put over the group fitness program at that job. So I would make the schedule and, you know, be over all the instructors and I would teach some too. And that was just nice because I, I really missed the teaching part of it. It was nice to take a break from my body to not teach so much. <laughs> but I really missed like the energy of being in front of a group and like teaching like I love, you know, doing the eight count and being on the beat and the music being. Just so satisfying. And, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just different. So I do like right now, I'm not actually teaching a class because I have like three jobs. Um also also relatable <laughs> right now. Yes. Yes, <laughs> so I do miss teaching, but I just can't add another thing to my plate, but I do plan to like go back at some point because I do miss it a lot.
0: So you mentioned that growing up for you, fitness or or even kind of in that those college years, in a sense, it felt like punishment. So what are some ways that yeah. movement can be, you know, a positive versus a negative experience, especially if somebody has? had a negative experience with it growing up, or they've always experienced, you know, I think of a client who had some, you know, muscular issues growing up. And so for her, it was like, I've always had pain with movement. And so how can this work for me on kind of my journey? Yeah. Yeah.
2: So the one thing I tell clients that seems so obvious, but if you don't like it, like the actual activity, don't do that activity. (laughs) Like, I feel like they think that they have to do a certain thing. Like they have to do yoga a certain way, or they have to go do a cardio machine or whatever it is. They think that it has to be in this box of how it should be done. And I always tell them you're, if you're moving your body, that is exercise, (laughs) like that is movement. So, you know, the whole thing of, if you like gardening, you could garden and like that can be your exercise if that's what's accessible to you and you enjoy it. I personally enjoy playing tennis and wish I could do it more. So, like going into a court at the rec in department, you know, playing tennis is a possibility. But just really sit down and reflect on what do I like? What do I like about it? How can I make it fit realistically into my life? Because if you hate running, um, talking to my younger self. Don't do it.
0: <laughs> don't do it. Here's your permission. If you're listening and you hate whatever it is that you've been doing, you hate that spin class, you hate that Trey. You, mm-hmm. this is your permission to to just stop.
2: Yes, yes, and go do something that you really, really enjoy, and don't worry about like whether or not like you're using your time most efficiently to mm-hmm. burn the most efficient energy. Just try to have fun with it, like. I'm I'm enjoying it again. Yeah.
0: What about your yogi? So, do you have any highlights on yoga? Because I apologize mm-hmm. if anybody can hear my dog barking. That is just that is that is the world we're in. You can't hear it. <laughs> oh, I didn't. Okay. Well, it, no. Ruby says hi to all our listeners. Hi, uh, Ruby. But specifically <laughs> with yoga, you know, and I know there's so many benefits to it, but I personally could always use a reminder of why. And how mm-hmm. yoga can help with the non-diet intuitive eating kind of body image healing journey. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: I, you know, use it a lot actually in sessions. That sounds weird, but like the breathing exercise is still yoga. So, you know, doing breathing exercises just to get in touch with that interceptive awareness part of intuitive eating. Um, it's kind of tied in naturally, but I try to get clients to do more restorative sessions and yin yoga. Um, when I did my 200 hour, my teacher was very into yin yoga. And it was really hard for me because I don't know if you are familiar
0: with yin yoga, but you hold a pose for like three to five minutes. Oh, gosh, that sounds so challenging. <laughs> I, yes. I, I mean, people are sure like... I've do- I'm actually I'm not sure if I've done yin yoga specifically.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a specific kind um, of yoga and they actually use like different phrases for the different positions because it's like very tied to nature. Mm. So like doing that kind of yoga is so much different because I think people only think of the flow or the vinyasas where their body's like constantly moving. And it's like, well, that's good. But also when your body's constantly moving, you can't sit with it. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: You can't like sit with your thoughts and sit with your body and just be in your body. You can't distract yourself. So, you know, doing some kind of yin or restorative yoga to be able to get back in touch with just how your body feels and how it moves in different ways that it folds on itself and being okay with that. And I do a lot of supportive touch exercises with clients and not as I'm all virtual, I'm not touching anyone They're They're holding themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So like supportive touch is an exercise on Kristen Neff's website, who talks about self-compassion a lot. So, you know, I tell them I use it from a body image perspective. And if, for example, they're really uncomfortable with their stomach area, then on their own or if they want me to help guide them, I'll do that as well. But, you know, put their hand on their stomach and just start to do some deep breathing and just allowing yourself to sit with feeling that area of your body instead of just pretending that it doesn't exist or disconnecting from it because you don't like Mm -hmm. it. So really just being able to connect back with different parts of your body. So
0: really it's a, it's almost like a structured guided way for almost a different form of mm-hmm. reconnecting with the body, especially if someone yeah. enjoys movement, they're mm-hmm. not really sure where to start, maybe they just don't jive with like meditation or things like that. This could be a great right. way to start. I'm curious from your perspective, yeah. the yoga, I don't even know what to call it, yoga community, would you say from your mm-hmm. experience is it as entrenched in diet culture as some of the other areas of the fitness industry
2: um i would say like what we talked about earlier is kind of sometimes don't everyone attack me, but, like <laughs> it's like a wolf in sheep's clothing sometimes mm-hmm. because it seems all like you know ooey gooey goodness and really it's just kind of like you said like wrapped differently earlier <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
2: sometimes yeah. now again we've created a bubble for ourselves right so like i've created a bubble of yogis that
0: like are we love that yeah
2: so, um, like Diane Bondi, I think is her last name. Um, you know, she does yoga from a weight inclusive standpoint, and then there's like yoga for everybody. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I try to stick to stuff like that. But if you're going to like a local place, just you know, I've I've heard. Not around here, but from other places I've heard some not great stories of their experience of like going to a yoga class and being in a bigger body, even from people that are actually teachers in a bigger body and going to other studios mm. and then being, you know, judged or, you know, othered. So I think it's it's depends would be yeah. the answer.
1: <laughs> I think it's a, just a good
0: reminder. Just again, go back to that sad point that diet culture is everywhere. And if, mm-hmm. especially in a fitness type setting, if you go somewhere and it, it doesn't feel inclusive or whatever reason you didn't feel welcome and you didn't have a great experience. It's like finding a therapist, you know, <laughs> finding a dietitian yes. or finding anybody. It's like yes. dating. I wish it, we could speak to really a is. therapist you know, and <laughs> Do the research that you can, but ultimately if you have a negative experience, try not to let that hold you back from still, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, putting yourself out there and, and Yeah, hopefully finding a better experience.
2: Exactly. No, definitely don't, don't give up if you want to. Cause again, yoga is so variable (laughs) depending on where you go, who the teacher is, the environment, the style of yoga, the music, um, the people in the class. So don't go to one class and then think
0: that everybody's that. Yeah. (laughs) Love that. Love that. Uh, Courtney, I could talk to you forever. There's so many golden nuggets in today's episode. So before we wrap up, we like to ask all our guests this question What is the best thing that's happened to you this week?
2: Um, yeah, I saw that question. And I was like, oh gosh. Um <laughs> I would say <laughs> one of the best I mean, things. Yes. I know I was like, oh, I don't know which one to pick. Um, I mean, honestly, anytime my kids like give me a hug and say, Mama, I love you, like that just is like what keeps me going right now. I know that sounds very cliche. And if you know me, I'm not a cliche person at all, but really that's kind of like what's making me feel good
0: right now. I think into just like the eyes of a child, just like, okay, after a hard day of like work and fighting diet culture, it's like, okay, my why? (laughs) Okay. We're going to be okay. Exactly. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And where do you like to hang out? If our listeners want to connect with you and learn more, where can they find you? Yeah. So I'm
2: I'm mostly on Instagram at Vickery Wellness. And then I also have a free Facebook group, and I'll give you the link for that. But it's Happy Not Hungry. Mm, And we just hang out and, you know, share recipes, talk about whatever they want to talk about. No set, you know, no set structure. We just hang out and support each other. And this is a safe space for there's no dieting there.
0: (laughs) And you also have a a branding studio. Tell us a little bit about that for anybody listening and they're like, Okay, I'm not going to become a dietitian, but I maybe I will start that thing. Yeah. So um,
2: that has been a journey this year. Um, I opened my studio in November, December of last year, just because everyone was asking me for help. So I was like, "Well, I'm just going to do this because I love it." Um, and so, yeah, I do website, WordPress website design and um, branding design for weight inclusive businesses mostly, you know, obviously dietitians and coaches and body image coaches and therapists hear that, but
0: honestly, I also work with an interior designer who's local. So, so fun. my
2: rule is just, I don't do weight loss. Yes.
0: And so if you're <laughs> listening, as long as you ensure that whatever it is that you're going to blog or sell or whatever, it's not weight loss. Courtney can help you out. I love it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Courtney. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. You're welcome.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Fit Friends Happy Hour. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share it with a friend. You can subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Fit Friends Happy Hour. Talk to you next time.